In this episode, we will resume the reading of Christianity Through the Centuries, A History of the Christian Church by Earl E. Carnes. This is a personal reading of this book on church history, uh, done in fulfillment of the requirements for a class that I'm taking through the Master's University Online, titled Church History. Today we come to chapter 20. In the section titled, Ebb and Flow in Relationships Between Church and State, 800 through 1054 A.D. Chapter 20. Revival and Schism in the Church. Although the Western Church was under the shadow of the Holy Roman Empire, during the latter part of the period between 800 and 1054, it experienced an inner renewal that gave it the strength to cope with imperial interference. The Eastern Church, during this era, became a conscious, became conscious of such differences between itself and the Western Church that the period ended with a schism resulting in the creation of the Greek Orthodox Church in the East. Roman numeral one, renewal in the West. Although the renewal in the Western Church was not always a renewal of spirit, there was a renewal of strength that helped it in the, its struggle with the state, represented by the German Holy Roman Empire. Several things strengthened the power of the Pope. Heading A. Documents Supporting the Papacy The donation of Constantine became the legal ground for the possession of land by the Pope. The greatest grant of land which this document was used to justify was given by Pepin in 756. In 865, Pope Nicholas I, who was Pope from 858 to 867, first made use of a collection of decrees of the various pontiffs of Rome. This collection is known as the False Decretals, or the Pseudo-Isidorian Decretals. The remarkable document included the donation of Constantine. The real, and some forged, decrees of decretals of the popes of Rome from the time of Clement of Rome, and some of the canons of the great councils of the Church. The collection was associated with the name of Isidore of Seville, circa 560-636, head of the Spanish Church during the first part of the 7th century. One cannot be dogmatic about the authorship of the Decretals, but it is certain that from the middle of the ninth century they played an important part in the claims of the Roman bishop to supremacy within the Church. The donation of Constantine, which was first exploited in the eighth century, was used to buttress the claims of the popes it to land in Italy, but the Decretals were appropriated to support the power of the pope within the Church. The Decretals also asserted the supremacy of the Pope over all ecclesiastical leaders of the Church, and gave any bishop the right to appeal directly to the Pope over the head of his archbishop. The right of the Church to be free from secular control was also claimed, although it is not likely that any Pope created the forgery, many Popes made use of the collection to support their claims to power within the Church. The dictatus of Gregory VII later reinforced these claims. Heading B. The Conversion of Scandinavia The power of the Roman bishop was strengthened in this era by the acceptance of the gospel by the people of Scandinavia. Anskar, 
801-865, a native of Flanders, deserves much of the credit for this gain. When the Danish king Harold asked for a missionary in 826, Anskar felt that he should answer the call. He devoted the rest of his life to missionary activity in northern Europe. Denmark was not finally won to Christianity until the 11th century in the days of Connaught. Christianity was permanently established in Norway during 1000. And about the same time, it was made the state religion in Sweden and, and Iceland. By 1000, the work began, begun by Anskar bore fruit that strengthened the power of Rome in Northern Europe. Heading C. The Doctrine of the Mass. The controversy regarding the nature of Christ's presence in the communion agitated the Western Church early in the ninth century. Any acceptance of the, of the idea of the Lord's Supper as a sacrifice by the priest was a gain for the power of the papacy, because the Pope headed the hierarchy of clergymen, who alone had the power to perform this miracle of the Mass. About 831, Rad Radbertus, 785 to 860, abbot of the monastery of Corby, near the city of Amiens, began to teach that by a divine miracle the substance of bread and the wine were actually changed into the body and blood of Christ. Although he did not call this change transubstantiation, his teaching amounted to the same thing. He set forth these views in 831, in, an, in a book entitled, Of the Body and Blood of the Lord. Such a view was bound to strengthen the power of the priest and his superior in the hierarchy of the Pope. Even though the Roman Church did not officially accept the doctrine of transubstantiation until 1215, nor fully define it until the Council of Trent in 1545. Monastic Reform, Heading D. The monastic reforms carried about by the Cluniac monasteries in the 10th and 11th centuries made a great contribution to the supremacy of the papacy. By the 10th century, the monasteries had become wealthy and corrupt and were badly in need of reform. The earlier ideal of service had been replaced by the ideal of individual salvation coupled with an easy life and a wealthy monastery. The papacy itself experienced a period of serious decline between Nicholas I and Leo IX. The reform movement originated at Cluny, was the first of several successive reform movements in Roman monasticism. It had far-reaching effects. The monastery at Cluny came about in this way. In 909, Duke William of Aquitaine, Aquitaine quote, for the good, End quote, of his soul, gave a charter to Berno, who had already made a record as abbot of another monastery to found a new monastery at Cluny in eastern France. The charter provided that the monastery was to be free from all secular or episcopal control and that it was to exercise self-government under the protection of the Pope. Berno and Otto Abbots in this first half of the ninth century were both men of ability and character. 
they did their work so well that many monasteries of the Benedictine order, including the monastery of Monte Cassino, were reorganized along the same lines as the one at Cluny. Under the old system of monasticism, each monastery had its own abbot and was independent of other monasteries of the same order. The abbot of Cluny, however, appointed the priors of new monasteries, founded by himself or others, and made them subject to himself. This innovation created an order that was centralized under the one head, the abbot of Cluny, who worked in close harmony with the papacy. By the 12th century, over 1,100 monasteries were under the leadership of the abbot of Cluny. The Cluniac leaders called for reform of the clerical life. Their Cluniac pl platform condemned simony, other, otherwise known as the practice of buying and selling church offices for money, and nepotism, the practice of showing favoritism to relatives in appointments to office. Celibacy was the third plank in their reform. Clergymen were neither to marry nor keep concubines, in order that their whole attention would be given to the affairs of the church. These monks also insisted that the church should be free from temporal or secular control by king, emperor, or duke. This program was put into effect by a series of reforming popes with the aid of the Cluniac monasteries. The ascetic life also received a new emphasis. The reforming enthusiasm of the Cluniac movement made itself felt in many other areas. The men of Cluny created good monastic schools, and these schools helped to make Latin the common tongue of the Middle Ages. The movement that resulted in the Crusades being launched against the, the Muslims in the Holy Land owed much to monks from Cluniac monasteries. Cluniac monasteries on the frontiers of civilization became centers of missionary effort, the order came to an end legally in 1790. Heading E. Capable Leaders Although many of the popes in the era between 800 and 1054 were corrupt or incompetent, there were several able leaders who helped to consolidate the strength of the papacy. Nicholas I, who was pope from 858 to 867, was one of the ablest of these men. Both in writing and in practice, he insisted on the supremacy of the Pope within the Church as one who was responsible for the spiritual welfare of the faithful and on the supremacy of the Pope over temporal rulers in matters of morals or religion. The pseudo-Isidorian decretals were often mentioned by him as a justification for his claim. Nicholas I successfully exerted his power over both bishops and the temporal ruler in the case of Lothair II of Lorraine. Lothair had married Tutberga, mainly for political reasons. Becoming enamored with Waldrada, he put his legal wife aside. He got a divorce from Tutberga by calling a synod, in which the bishops granted him a divorce. Appeal was made to Nicholas by both parties, but in the meantime Lothair had married Waldrada, Determined to bring under control the bishops, who had acted so hastily to discipline Lothair for immorality, Nicholas forced Lothair to set aside Waldrada and to restore Tutberga to her place as his rightful wife. 
Nicholas was also successful in upholding the right of a bishop to appeal directly to the Pope. When Hincmar, Archbishop of Reims, removed Rothad, Bishop of Sosons, from his position, Nicholas reversed Hincmar's decision and forced him to restore Rothad to his bishopric. Nicholas even tried to assert his authority over the Patriarch and the Eastern Empire in, at Constantinople. Emperor Michael, who had been corrupted by his uncle Bardas, deposed the Patriarch Ignatius when he refused to administer the sacrament to Bardas, and in 858 he appointed the learned Photius in his place. Ignatius asked Nicholas for aid. Nicholas declared Photius deposed, but an Eastern Synod, under the leadership of Photius, accused the Western Church of heresy for adding to the creed the statement that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son as well as from the Father. Ill will between the two sections of the Church was augmented, and Nicholas, though successful in asserting his supremacy over temporal and ecclesiastical rulers in the West, was unsuccessful in the East. Between the pontificates of Nicholas I and Leo IX, there were few good leaders on the papal throne. This was not for lack of popes, because over forty popes occupied the episcopal throne in Rome during that period. A particularly bad scandal developed in the middle of the 11th century. Benedict IX, an unworthy pope, was driven from Rome, and Sylvester III was placed on the papal throne. Benedict returned to Rome and sold the papal throne for a large sum of money in 1045 to a man who became Gregory VI. During the course of events, however, Benedict refused to lay down the papacy. There were now three popes, each claiming to be the rightful pope. Henry III, circa 1017-56, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, then called a synod at Sutri in 1046. Benedict and Sylvester were deposed, and Gregory was forced to resign in favor of Clement II. Clement soon died, and his successor, another one of Henry's appointees, was also short-lived. Henry later appointed his cousin Bruno as Pope Leo IX. With the coming of Leo IX, the long era of poor popes between Nicholas I and Leo IX came to an end because Leo and his successors were strong men who were interested in reform along the lines of the Cluniac platform. The Synod of Sutri thus marked the lowest ebb in the power of the papacy in the medieval period. Under Nicholas II, aided by Humbart and the able Hildebrand, who was to become Gregory VII, the election of the pope was taken out of the hands of the Roman populace and put under the control of the church leaders in the College of Cardinals in 1059. From that time until the papacy reached a peak of power under Innocent III, there was steady advance in the influence of the papacy in European affairs. The church in the East, harassed by the fight to restrain the Muslims from overrunning the Eastern Empire, weakened by the control of its affairs by the emperor, of that empire, and frustrated by the theological decline that set in after the great work of John of Damascus, was not in a position to offer much opposition to the rise of temporal as well as spiritual power of the Roman bishop. 
the growing antagonism between the two sections of the church, which rose out of historic roots, led to a break in 1054. With the break, two great divisions of the Christian religion appeared, and they, had, and they have had few official contacts with each other since that time. The Origin of Greek Orthodox Church Roman numeral 2 The church in the East was never able to be as independent as that in the West because it was under the eye of the emperor and because it had to cope with the Greco-Roman tradition of culture, which was preserved in the East during the time the West was going through the cultural chaos of the Dark Ages. After the fall of the Roman Empire, the church in the West faced no great political rival on the imperial throne and grew stronger as it faced the problems associated with the cultural chaos that surrounded the fall of the empire. Heading A. Differences and Causes for Separation of East and West When Constantine moved his capital to Constantinople in 330, he paved the way for political and finally ecclesiastical separation of the church into the East and the West. Theodosius put the administration of the eastern and western areas of the empire under separate heads in 395. With the fall of the Roman Empire in the west, in the late 5th century, this division was completely realized. The church in the east was under the jurisdiction of the emperor, but the pope in Rome was too far away to be brought under his control. In the absence of effective political control in the West, the Pope became a temporal as well as a spiritual leader in times of crisis. Emperors were almost popes in the East, and the West popes were, and in the West popes were almost emperors. This gave two, gave the two churches an entirely different outlook concerning temporal power. The intellectual outlook of the West also differed from that of the East. The Latin West was more inclined to consider practical matters of polity, and had little trouble formulating orthodox dogma. The Greek mind of the East was more interested in solving theological problems along philosophical lines. Most of the theological controversies between 325 and 451 arose in the East, but in most cases the same problems caused little difficulty in the West. Another difference between the two churches concerned celibacy. Marriage of all parish clergies below the rank of bishop was permitted in the East, but in the West the clergy were not allowed to marry. Disputes even arose on some occasions over the wearing of beards. The priest in the West might, have, might shave his face, but the clergyman in the East had to wear beards. Also, the West stressed the use of Latin, whereas the, use, the Eastern churches used Greek. This occasionally led to misunderstanding. Language and culture were also different. Although these and other matters may seem trivial now, they were of great importance at the time to both sections of the church. The two churches clashed over theological matters. In 867, Photius, the patriarch in the East, charged Nicholas I and the church in the West with heresy, because the West had the philoquy clause in its form of the Nicene Creed. The West accepted the procession of the Holy Spirit from the Son, but this was rejected by the East. Then a series of controversies embittered relations between the East and the West. With each dispute the hostility increased. 
About the middle of the second century, the problem of when to celebrate Easter had arisen to mar relations between the two sections of the church. Differences of opinion regarding this question always made Im 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 amicable relations between the two groups difficult. The iconoclastic controversy in the Eastern Church in the 8th, 8th and 9th centuries caused many hard feelings. In 726, Leo III, as Emperor of the East, forbade any kneeling before pictures or images, and in 730 he ordered all except the cross removed from the churches and destroyed to limit the power of the monks and to refute Muslim charges of idolatry. This attempt at lay revival in the Eastern Church, ran into the vested opposition of the parish and monastic clergy. In the West, the Pope and even the Emperor, Charlemagne, took a stand in favor of the use of visible symbols of divine reality. This interference by the West in the affairs of the Church of the East increased the antagonism between the two areas. The Church in the West continued to use pictures and statues in worship, and the church in the east, however, finally eliminated statues but kept icons, usually pictures, of Christ, which were to be accorded reverence, but not worship, which belongs to God alone. The people of the east particularly resented the attempt by Pope Nicholas I in the middle of the ninth century to interfere with the appointment of the patriarch of the church in the east, even though it may have been justified on moral grounds. Although Nicholas was not successful, his interference in what many in the East felt was a matter of, for the East alone intensified the bad feelings between the two churches. Heading B. The Schism of 1054. In 1054, the final controversy revolved around what was apparently a minor matter. Michael Cerularius, Patriarch of Constantinople, from 1043 to 1059, condemned the church in the West for the use of unleavened bread in the Eucharist. Such use had been a growing practice in the West since the 9th century. Pope Leo IX sent Cardinal Humbart and two other legates, legates to the East to end the dispute. The differences of opinion widened as the discussions went on. On July 16, 1054, the Roman legates finally put a decree of excommunication of the patriarch and his followers on the high altar of the, ca of the cathedral church of St. Sophia. The patriarch was not to be outdone, and thereupon in synod he anathematized the Pope of Rome and his followers. The first great schism in Christianity broke the unity of the church. From this time on, the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church went their separate ways. This mutual excommunication was not removed until December 7, 1965, by Paul VI and Athenagoras. Heading C. The Consequences of Schism An ecumenical movement was difficult after the bitter events that separated the church in the East and the church in the West. The modern ecumenical movement aimed at the reunion of the churches of Christendom was, has had little support from the Roman Catholic Church and from the Greek Orthodox Church. The movement has been primarily a Protestant movement until recently. Neither of the two churches desires an ecumenical church except on its own terms, though the Church of the East has been willing to confer with Protestant churches concerning reunion. 
Separation shut the church in the East off from many of the vitalizing influences that strengthened the church in the West. The rise of towns, nations, and the middle class, the cultural movements of the Renaissance, and the Reformation passed by the church in the East. But the Roman Catholic Church in the West was subjected to their influence and made stronger, either by assimilation of helpful features or by reaction against what appeared to Rome to be harmful. The Church in the East did, however, engage in some missionary work in this era. Boris, the Bulgarian rule, ruler, adopted, <clears throat> pardon me, ruler adopted in 864 the faith of Constantinople. Although Cyril and Methodius won the Moravians to Christianity, the Moravians finally came under Roman jurisdiction instead of that of Constantinople. The patriarch had more success with missionary work in Russia. A princess named Olga accepted Christianity in 955 and was able to influence her grandson, Vladimir, 956 to 1015, so that he accepted Christianity in 988. This event marked the beginning of the triumph of Eastern Christianity in Russia. Russia, along with much of the Eastern and Central Europe, followed the Patriarch of Constantinople. The Magyars also were converted. The shock of the rise of Islam in the 7th century and loss of people and land to the Muslims, coupled with the two centuries of unrest concerning the use of images, left Christianity in the East to decline. Little change in ritual, polity, or theology has appeared in that church until the present time. Consequently, it has not had the influence on the world that Christianity in the West has had, though in the ancient period of church history it had led in the formulation of theology.